verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I imagine that probably everybody here believes that. But um, does everybody out there believe that? No, not everybody out there believes that. Um, and uh, what do they believe instead? The sort of thing they believe, of course, is evolution. What's the alternative to God creating things? Evolution. If you don't want to believe in God, you believe in evolution. And uh, St. Julian Huxley was head of UNESCO for many years and uh, he said this. He said, In the evolutionary pattern of thought, there is no longer either need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created. It evolved. So did all the animals and plants that inhabited, including our human selves, mind and soul, as well as brain and body. So did religion. So in this view, which is taught in our schools and universities today, God, we invented God. God didn't invent us. In fact, you can study theology at the University, uh, Melbourne University, and uh, you'll be taught by an atheist. In fact, the University of Queensland had a professor of theology, uh, Dr. Uh, professor Philip Armand. He was an atheist. You see, in a university, God doesn't exist. Only ideas about God exist. Isn't it amazing that people believe in God when he doesn't exist. And so we've got the God virus, you see. <laughs> and they pat you on the head and say, well, there, yeah, you might grow out of this one day, but uh, really, um, thank you, Lord. So um, there's the quote from Julian Huxley. Now, what's taught in our schools and universities today is God created things? Is that what's taught? Do you, where do you hear that? Maybe in church, <laughs> or at least in this church. Not even all churches you'll hear that. And uh, but what is taught instead? This is taught instead. In fact, right across the board, uh, you pick up a newspaper, you pick up a women's magazine. I don't read them, but I'm told this. Now, why men are, promiscu why men are promiscuous? Because they have evolutionary ancestry. Hmm? And so on. And... Uh, you go to a national park and it tells you about, wow, look at the wonderful creation of God. Is that what it says in the sign? It says how it evolved over hundreds of millions of years, this doesn't it? Everywhere you go, this is drummed at us. Bang, 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 bang. It must be true. Everybody says so. And then we go street preaching. We try to share the gospel with people. And what do they think? They think we're crazy. And one of the, the first objections is, oh, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Or something like that. They might not say evolution, but they, oh, I'm a rational person. I believe in evidence-based beliefs. Right? They don't believe in evidence. They believe in evidence, they believe in God. Because there's abundant evidence that God created things. And what's the consequence of this teaching? An atheist at Cornell University, William Provine, said this. He said, evolution is the greatest engine of atheism ever invented. Greatest engine of atheism ever invented. Surveys in schools in Melbourne show that in year 10, half the kids say they're atheists. When I was in year 10, I don't think I knew an atheist. What's happened? This doctrine of evolution has taken over our society. 
and it's taught from the cradle to the grave and young people get the message. If evolution is true, there's no room for God. And what's the consequence of this? Right around the world we're seeing countries which were once strongly Christian are now pagan. You have to live under a rock to not realise it. I mean, we're living in a country where they're talking about two blokes getting married. I mean, who would have thought even 20 years ago we'd be having that debate? And here in Victoria, teaching kids in school that, well, you might look like a boy, but you could be a girl and we'll help you become a girl and we won't tell your parents about it and we'll give you drugs and things to make you look like a girl. Safe schools, not safe, very dangerous. Child abuse of the highest order. What's it all based on? It's based on this. We're just animals. We can do whatever we like. In the United States, the uh, Southern Baptists uh, reckon that 88% of children raised in evangelical homes now leave the church at the age of 18 never to return. It's just the Southern Baptists? No, it's right across the board. Some of the figures are 60%, but 60 to 88%, so that's the range. Could be higher in some churches. I wouldn't be surprised. Here in Melbourne, this uh, youth worker at a church in Melbourne, um, up by Anglican Church actually, this youth leader, and she said, I used to beat my head against the wall wondering why we lost our young people about age 16. The last few years I realised that age 16 or year 10 is when they teach evolution in depth in science. I've also discovered that some of the teachers actually identify the Christian students, make a special point of explaining the differences and difficulties of reconciling Genesis and the facts of evolution. I've come near to tears just thinking about it. said, uh, but what's she done? She realised what the problem was and started to do something about it and arrested the attrition rate. And churches which teach their young people about these things from a young age and families that teach their young people about these things from a young age don't have this attrition rate. I'm not saying that uh, the human heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things and, and uh, we, we each, each uh, chart our own course and children do go astray. But I tell you what, I've seen over and over again that families where the parents and particularly the father does not believe the Bible in Genesis, particularly the young men, the sons, walk away from the Lord. They walk away from the church. But where the father believes the Bible in Genesis and teaches the young people about these things, the young people grow up strong in God. I've seen it over and over and over again. And the sadness of parents, mums and dads, and their kids walk away but it's their own unbelief that's actually a big factor in their kids walking away. Now, don't get me wrong. There are kids that walk away that get raised the right way. Right? I'm not saying every, it's not, not just black and white because we each are responsible for our own behaviour. And sometimes our kids wander away and they grieve us and they come back again. And my own son, one of my own sons, they had a time in the wilderness. They had a a bad time with their church and they, they got burnt and they dropped out and they, got, and they grew cold and, and, uh, and eventually they came back, he and his wife. And uh, you know what he said to me? He said, Dad, 
I could not turn my back on what I knew was true. I could not turn my back on what I knew was true. So it wasn't just he wasn't just raised on Bible stories, but raised on connecting the Bible to God's world that shows that it's true. It's not just stories about God. It's not just stories about things. It's things that really happen in time and space. Folks, this is just missing in so many of our churches. We've got our Bible colleges telling the future pastors that, oh, no, you can believe in evolution and the Bible. And as a young Christian, I tried to do that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. One of the greatest resources we have in all this is Creation Magazine. And uh, you were all given, hopefully given one when you came in this morning. One per family, one per household. Everybody got a magazine? Anybody not get a magazine that's in a, a household or something? If you didn't get one, put up your hand and, and the volunteers will bring you a magazine. And uh, we've got, um, that's free. Uh, donors have provided money to provide this uh, so you can have that magazine. I'll talk more about that later. There's also a pen there and there's a, so who, who, didn't, who didn't, didn't get a magazine? There's a lady at the back and a lady here. Magazine? A lady at the back. Up the back here, yeah. Thank you. And uh, there's a, the website. There's uh, over uh, 11,000 articles on the website. There's videos. There's all sorts of... Yeah, it's just amazing the amount of material. You can search for topics up here. And so we won't answer all the questions this morning, but you can search there and there's amazing what answers there are there on the website. Creation.com, it's really hard to remember, isn't it? In fact, if you Google creation, up will come creation.com, the first few hits on Google. So there you go. They haven't started censoring us yet. But that'll come. It'll come. The way things are going, Google was censoring uh, politically incorrect websites like creation.com and, and so on. And uh, we put out an Infobytes, an email news comes out every about once a week. Who gets Infobytes? Who gets Infobytes? A number of people, uh, you were perhaps a couple of you here this morning because of Infobytes, because we would be uh, telling about this meeting this morning on Infobytes. And uh, so there's a little uh, did you know there, there's uh, this thing, one of these, about six of these different ones around the, around the place. Anybody not have one of those? There should be one near you if you don't have one. Have a look on the seat there, you'll see them there. There's in, did you know, on the back side of that um, is a little form that you can fill in uh, with your details and you can get Infobytes, so, which is our email news. It comes out about once a week. And um, the pen that came with your magazine is so you can fill out the form. So you find the pen, the free pen that came with the magazine, you can fill out the form. Now we're going to collect those in a couple of minutes, so if you can fill that out now and we'll collect them. Uh, so the volunteers from Creation Ministries International uh, Friends Group in Melbourne here uh, we'll collect those. So if you can fill that out, pass them to the end of the aisle like you did with your communion glasses and they will be collected. So uh, I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. We've got all sorts of other uh, resources out there. You can go up when you cup of tea afterwards and have a look at those. And I'll just mention those as Creation Magazine. comes out four times a year. Journal Creation, in-depth material, answers book, answers over 65 questions that people have about these things. If you do street witnessing, you should read the answers book because that'll answer nearly every question you ever get asked on the street. So if you don't do street witnessing, you still get if you witness, you'll get asked these questions like, "Well, you believe in the Bible? Where did Cain get his wife?" 
that's a favourite uh, one they throw up at you. Uh, where did God come from? Right? And uh, how did Noah fit all those animals in the ark? Etc. Where did the water come from with the flood? All sorts of questions like that. So I'm sure all of you realise that we all have a worldview or a way of looking at things which determines how we sort of perceive things. And what, with these issues we're talking about today, your glasses affect how you see things. And I don't mean the glasses through which you need to read or, or, or for driving or whatever. I mean the glasses through which you see the world, the worldview you have. You can have a secular worldview where you see things as if there is no God. So how do we understand everything without God? That's what's taught in our schools and universities now. How do we understand everything without reference to God? That's a secular worldview. That's what we're, we're living with the consequences of that now with the safe schools and, and same-sex marriage and all these sorts of things that are going on which are just, uh, just destroying the country. Or you can have a Christian worldview. And when I was a child, just about everybody had a Christian worldview in this country. Not that they were all Christians, but they had a Christian worldview. They believed there's a God in heaven who made everything and uh, to whom we will be accountable. They foolishly thought that their good works would make them uh, acceptable to God, by and large. But uh, we've talked about that this morning around communion, about our good works give us nothing but God's judgment because our good works aren't good. But uh, God sent his son to bear the judgment for us so that we did, did not need to uh, suffer for our sins, praise God. And uh, wonderful to meet around the Lord's table to remember that. So I want to say, first of all, one of the things that really helped me in all this was to understand the difference between what we call operational science and historical science. Now, operational science is what sort, sort of science that gives us all the wonderful modern advantages, uh, like technology and understanding disease and how to stop disease, how to cure disease, and all sorts of incredibly valuable things come from operational science, how things work. Study things, work out how they work, what causes this, what causes that. This involves observable, repeatable, testable experiments in the present. And this is a wonderful enterprise which I was involved with for some years doing research on uh, plants and uh, things like mangoes, lychees, custard apples and things like that. It's enjoyable eating the fruits of my labour. And uh, this contrasts though with uh, another form of science which is really rampant today and that is this, uh, where things came from, historical science, what happened in the past. And this is not repeatable, not observable, not repeatable. No experiments are possible on the past. We don't have a time machine. But this is put up as science and therefore people think because they have this respect for science from here, they transfer that respect to here. It doesn't deserve the same respect because it's not science, it's actually history. But it's being put into science because it makes people believe it. If it's in a history class, people mightn't take so much notice of it. But of course they want to take notice of it because they don't want to believe in God. It's not observable, not repeatable, no experiments are possible. Fundamentally, science studies are repeatable, history studies are unrepeatable. Things like history of dinosaurs, you know, you've seen Jurassic Park and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so people believe the dinosaur died out 65 million years ago. How does that fit with the Bible? How do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible? You don't. The Bible must be wrong. And so this is what young people think. 
for me. And I read my Bible and I read it straightforwardly. It says there that on day six of creation week, God created land animals along with mankind and land animals would include dinosaurs. Yes, they were created by God. They didn't come from somewhere else. So is there any evidence that people and dinosaurs will live together? Because it was evening, morning, the sixth day. It all happened on a day. And uh, long periods of time don't have an evening and morning, do they? They're not demarcated by an evening and morning. And I used to think that the days could be long periods of time, and uh, but they're not. They're, they're, they're six days with a seventh day of rest. They're based on a seven-day week, as uh, God spoke to Moses about that when he gave the Ten Commandments. I created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in them. And six days, rest on the seventh. So you ought to work for six and rest on the seventh. So that was the basis of the Sabbath commandment given to Moses and the children of Israel. So you're saying then that um, Fred Flintstone cartoons were accurate, that people and dinosaurs lived together. Well, basically, yes. Uh, there's lots of evidence, in fact, that people and dinosaurs lived together in the form of art recording sightings of dinosaurs in the past. Except before 1841, they were not called dinosaurs, they were called dragons. Lots of dragon stories around the world, which we can recognise today as being very dinosaur-like stories. And here's one bit of art from the Middle East found predating Jesus, uh, Jesus' arrival on earth that is, and when you roll that into wax, it forms a pattern. What sort of creature might that be? A cylinder seal it is, used for sealing court documents and things. It's a very good representation of a dinosaur today we know as Tanistrophius. You're about to say that, weren't you? When, you, when I googled for an image of Tanistrophius, up came this one from JurassicParkWikia.com, and I said I didn't get our artist to draw it or something like that. It's just straight off the internet. This is based on fossils. This is obviously based on an eyewitness account. You see, our children are taught that dinosaurs weren't created by God. They evolved. And they evolved ultimately from bacteria that made them cells billions of years ago. It's quite preposterous when you think about it. In fact, elephants and mice had some sort of common ancestor in the past. If you trace the ancestors of elephants backwards and the ancestors of mice backwards, you'll find a creature was neither a mouse nor an elephant which gave rise to both. And ultimately back to bacteria uh, via reptiles and fish and all sorts of other things. And the children, the students are told that fossils show that this happened. But they don't. The fossils don't show that. This is a typical diagram from a textbook used at university level. And the, the school textbooks, though, don't show all the detail that the university one does. This is a, like year three at university. Uh, they don't show this to first-year university students either because they might not believe in evolution if they did. This is the ancestry, supposedly, of a number of different serpent groups or reptile groups, and you see them all connected together into a big family tree with a common ancestor down the bottom here. So this is a, uh, the evolution of these different types of reptiles. Now notice something, that there's solid lines and there are also dotted lines, the dotted lines are actually no fossils. It's imagination. The hard solid lines are the fossil evidence down through the rock layers. So we erase the imagination. Whoops, what happened to the evolution? See that? 
Erase the imagination. No transitional forms. Right across the board, that's the pattern. Some evolutionists are candid enough to admit that the fossils don't show evolution. This guy here, the William Provine I mentioned a while ago, said the evidence for the big transformations in evolution are not there in the fossil record. The evidence for the big transformations should be the most obviously present in the fossil record. They're not there because it never happened. It's, it's been imposed on the evidence by people who don't want to believe in a creator. And you probably saw the, seen the idea about whales uh, evolving from land animals. You've seen that's fairly been fairly popular in the last 20 years. Uh, this is a diagram from National Geographic showing how a cow evolved into a whale. <coughs> I do a bit of surfing and I'd be rather surprised to see this. Well, cows can jump over the moon. Um, what's the evidence for whale evolution? Well, let me just show you the sort of storytelling that goes on. This is just unbelievable. Here it is on the cover of Science Journal, which is the world's number two science journal, Pachycetus, the whale from Pakistan that's on the way to becoming a whale. It's land creature growing flippers and becoming a whale. Now, what's the question you should ask about that? artist diagram. What's the evidence for it? Okay, Here's the evidence for it. This is what they found. In fact, what they found were the stipple bits of the skull. See the shaded bits? That's what they found. And based on that, they drew this. And it wasn't just the artist, it was the actual paleontologist, Gingerich, who wrote about this. In fact, 11 years later, he said this, in time and its morphology, Pachycetus is perfectly intermediate, a missing link between earlier land animals and later full-fledged whales, he said, in Natural History magazine. So 11 years later, it's still kicking around. It's now in the school textbooks. Pachycetus, proof that whales evolved from land animals. Seven years later... Another paleontologist went digging in Pakistan and found the rest of Pachycetus. And the rest of Pachycetus, not just the bits of the skull, now looks like this. And putting flesh on that is not a lot of imagination. It looks something like this. That looks very much like the original artist's description, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. I'm being sarcastic. Um, not at all. So, this, folks, this is the sort of extreme storytelling that becomes dogma in our school textbooks. This is just ridiculous. Abs and this guy was rewarded by made, being made president of the American Paleontological Association. Right? This is bizarre. This is... But this is the stuff that's being shoved down our kids' throats in schools and universities and nature documentaries and it's just laughable, except that it's not laughable, it's very, very seriously sad. You say, well, what's the evidence that you know one kind of creature could change into another? Well, the sort of evidence presented for that is this sort of thing. 
Uh, you've got the Darwin's finches. Here they are in uh, the Darwin studied these things and other biologists have studied them in more recent years and in the Galapagos Islands uh, there are all these different varieties of finches as there are varieties of finches all around the world. But the story goes that perhaps some finches were blown onto the Galapagos Islands from the mainland and those finches then have diversified into these different beak types and things adapted to different sorts of food. So you see the fine beak here, up here, this one has is very good for probing into flowers and getting insects. This one over here is good for cracking hard seeds. Not so good for getting insects in flowers. You can see as the food availability varies from season to season in the Galapagos Islands, then uh, the different finches will be better adapted to different sorts of food. Uh, these ones will do well in the wet season with lots of flowers, lots of insects, but they won't do so well in the dry season when there's not many flowers and insects but these ones over here with a big fat beak that can crack the hard seeds left over from the good season that are lying around, they'll do much better and they'll breed up in numbers then. But these ones will breed up in numbers in the good seasons. So you can see as the seasons come and go, the, num the populations of finches are going to go up or down depending on their adaptation, what sort of food they're adapted to. I don't have a problem with the story. I don't have a problem with the story. How does that prove evolution? How does that prove that cows can change into whales or that microbes change into microbiologists. As you think about it, variety in beaks does not even explain the origin of beaks. I notice we've got some different shaped beaks here today. <coughs> We're not, not evolving into something else, just variety of beaks. And the Bible tells us God made different kinds of things after their kind. And we see that. We see that people produce people and dog, dog, frogs produce frogs and horses produce horses. There's varieties of horses and varieties of frogs and varieties of people, varieties of dogs. But this is variation within different created kinds. They're not changing into something else. You see, today we know why one kind of thing can't change into the other. It's got to do with the information on the DNA. And everybody's heard of DNA these days. The stuff of inheritance and genes and chromosomes and all that, genetic uh, diseases and things are known about. But, you know, you think about a microbe, the simplest microbe that can live, and how much information does it have in its DNA? Well, you're talking about a book the size of a Bible in a sort of simple microbe. If you write out all the information on the DNA in a book, it would be the size of a Bible. But how do you change a microbe? Well, how do you get that information to start with? Because they say it just made itself. How does a book make itself? And you need to be able to read the book. I mean, the, the actual microbe can read the book. How does, that, how does that just happen? It doesn't. You know, I, I would de happily debate this with anybody at any university, but nobody will debate it. They shut down the debate. Like the media have shut down the debate about same-sex marriage. You know, the, the, most people out there don't even think there's a debate. There's no argument. They've done that with evolution. It's at the schools and universities, it's just shut it down. In fact, if you're a teacher in a school and you start teaching kids that evolution has problems, you'll get shown the door. I had it happen to a friend of mine in New South Wales. It's indoctrination, not, indoctrination, not, not, not education. 
So how do you change a microbe into a horse? Because to make a horse, you have to add stacks more books of information to specify how to make all the things that horses have that microbes don't have. Where does the information come from? The only explanation for this is mutations created all the new information. What are they? They're copying mistakes. When the information is copied from one generation to the next, one organism to the, the offspring, the, the information of the DNA is copied. Mistakes are made in copying the information. They're called mutations. Mutations, therefore, are, uh, are mistakes in the information. Mistakes, you would expect, would mess up the information, and they do. Now, this is a rooster with no feathers because the information for how to make feathers has been messed up by mutation. Is the rooster improved? Is it evolving towards becoming something else? No, of course not. Now, it might, uh, well, it's going to fry in summer and freeze in winter. It's not much of an improvement for the rooster, is it? See, the chicken farmer might reckon it's an improvement because he doesn't have to pluck it. TNR mutant, very technical, totally naked rooster mutant. <coughs> we have over a thousand diseases caused by mutations, sickle cell anemia, haemophilia, hemochromatosis, cystic fibrosis and many, many others. And the number is growing daily. The number known about is growing daily. And uh, these mutations are destroying us. They're not creating us. They're not making us into Superman. They're making us into X-Men. EX, not X-Men. You know what I mean? See, there's an X-Men. Uh, it's a popular uh, sci-fi genre, isn't it? And what's the story? Mutations create Superman. And the kids think, oh, it's, mutations are good. And they hear about them in school, mutations. Oh, yeah, it's evolution. That's right. We, we saw it on the movies, X-Men. Incredible features, you know, uh, come about by mutations. The mutations don't do that sort of stuff. They destroy things. Sometimes they're useful. Well, sickle cell anemia is held up as being a beneficial mutation. Well, how, can, how can a disease be beneficial? Well, it is if you happen to live in Africa where there's malaria because if you have sickle cell anemia, you don't get malaria because the malaria parasite can't infect your defective blood cells. So this is held up as being a beneficial mutation. You like it? Would you like that mutation? You try and run a marathon, you drop dead because you can't get enough oxygen into your body because of the defective blood cells. And the stuff being discovered by operational science, real science, shows that evolution should be dead in the water. Right now inside you and me is a delivery system delivering things inside our cells uh, and uh, this is necessary for life necessary for us to live. And this is an animation showing uh, how it's thought to work. It walks around a road network of proteins called microtubules, uses an energy compound for each step. There's 125,000 steps in a millimetre. 125,000 steps in a millimetre. We're talking about nanotechnology here, like that we can just dream about as human beings. And it's delivering parcels of proteins. The proteins are actually manufactured with an address label on them, say, where they'll be taken to in the cell. The cell reads the address labels, packages them up together, sends them off to the same destination. 
This is what's happening here. Amazing technology. And it just made itself. Mutations created it. Madness. Absolute madness. This it screams at us that there's a super intelligent mind behind the created order. How incredible is our creator? How incredible is our God? They should be praising God, but they're not. They're praising evolution. Blasphemy. See, neither mutations nor natural selection create the information needed. Evolution is an impossible process. So why is it taught in our schools and our universities? This billboard in Colorado in the United States summarizes the reason why it's taught. Praise Darwin, evolved beyond belief, put up by the atheists who put up money. The Freedom from Religion Foundation is an atheist club, put up money to put up billboards to encourage people to believe in Darwin rather than God. See, it's part of the secular drive to get rid of God out of, out of our society. It's, it's central to the secular agenda to remove God from our country. And it's working. It's working very effectively. So what about our theologians who tell us, oh, you can believe in God and e evolution? Does that work? Think about this. The millions of years are in the rock layers and in the rock layers are fossils, the remains of once living things which are now dead. They're a record of pain, death, killing, disease, thorns, struggle for survival, suffering and extinction over hundreds of millions of years before people came on the scene. But God said when he finished, everything was very good. He's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's all very good. Every scheme that wants to marry the Bible with evolution with or without or millions of years, even without evolution, has to put all those dead things under the feet of Adam and Eve in the garden and that represents death, suffering and disease over eons of time. We celebrated what Jesus did for us around the communion table this morning. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is called the last Adam. The last Adam comes to undo what the first Adam did. For as in Adam all die, uh, Pastor James mentioned this, uh, that if we're in Adam, we die, but in Christ we can be made alive. So the last Adam comes to undo the work of the first Adam. So uh, which person is not a real person? You see, the clever theologians will tell you, well, Adam was just a metaphor because they don't believe that Adam really existed because they've accepted the evolutionary story. Well, what's that do to the gospel? You end up with no gospel. It destroys the gospel. The only one view that actually doesn't do that, and that's God created everything in six days like the Bible says. The thing that really unlocked this for me when I was trying to believe in evolution and the Bible was when somebody pointed out to me the importance of the flood in understanding the history of the world. Noah's flood. Noah built this massive boat to escape the flood. Now, at that time, I was trying to believe that the flood was a local flood. Noah built this boat to escape a local flood. 
massive boat. Well, that doesn't make sense because if there was a local flood, he could have emigrated. In fact, why would he need birds in the boat for a local flood? That doesn't make sense. And if there was a global flood, you'd expect to find plenty of evidence for it and there is abundant evidence for it when you go looking or you get your eyes open to see it. If there was a global flood, you'd expect lots of fossils because you'd find lots of mud created by a global flood and the mud would bury things and create fossils. And we find fossils which indicate they were buried in a massive global flood all around the world. Billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down in water all over the world. This is a, a horse fossil found in deposits in the United States. Notice what else is with the horse. Fish. How does that happen? How do you even get a horse fossil? You have to have lots of mud. Where do you get lots of mud from? You get it from a global flood. In fact, local floods don't create enough mud to do that sort of thing. Um, you know, the local floods may create sort of 10 centimetres of mud, but you need metres of mud to bury a horse. And all around the world we find these massive rock layers which were once mud. Grand Canyon. This is a layer after layer after layer of sand and silt and clay and so on which is once deposited by water. In fact, the, ma the extent of this indicates that it was a global flood. The Coconino sandstone here covers over 500,000 square kilometres in the United States, 100 metres thick on average, and it has sand dune structures within it which show it was laid down underwater and very quickly, within, within a matter of days. And you can trace, you can see the layers in the Grand Canyon are all deposited on top of one another horizontally and there's no evidence of erosion between them. And so this all got, got deposited very, very quickly in a short space of time, but they say it took 300 million years, the evolutionary story. But you trace eastwards and you find a spot where all the strata are bent. You can see the people for scale. And so you see that it goes from horizontal here to vertical in a matter of metres. And how do you bend rock? Because if all this stuff was deposited over 300 million years, it would be hard when it was bent because the bending didn't occur, according to their story, until 180 million years after the last slot was deposited. Here it is, a diagram. 300 million years to lay down the layers. The bending occurred 180 million years later. But there's no evidence of any hardness of the rock where it was bent. It was still soft. All the material was still soft when it was bent. It had to be bent straight after it was laid down. It had to be laid down in a very quick time. I mean, if the rocks could remain soft for so long, there should be hard anywhere on the earth that you could walk and still, it's hard. You know, I mean, it'd be just mud everywhere. You know what this does? This, these observations blow away 480 million years of imaginary evolutionary time. Here's another thing. People think about carbon dating. They think, oh, carbon dating proves things are millions of years old. But in fact, carbon dating is a problem for millions of years. And the reason is that the carbon-14 breaks down so quickly that it can only supposedly date things which are at a maximum 90,000 years old. Anything older than that have no carbon-14 in it. Here's the problem. You take coal samples around the world, different places, different so on, and you take, this is a person for scale here, date, do carbon dates of these coal samples, right? This is supposed to have taken 
eons of time to lay these cold layers down. So you take each of these samples take uh, and do a, a carbon date. What do you find? The same carbon-14 age of thousands of years for all the layers. In fact, this has been done with coal ranging in, in supposed age, supposed evolutionary age, from 37 to 318 million years and they all had the same carbon-14 level. You know why? Because it was all buried in Noah's flood. It's all buried in Noah's flood. This is carbon dating is powerful evidence against the millions of years. You look at things like this um, canyon here. This is uh, called Little Grand Canyon. It's near Mount St. Helens up in the United States, the northwest of the United States. Mount St. Helens erupted in March 1980. About two years later, March 1982, a mud flow flowed down the hill and carved out that canyon in less than a day. You wouldn't believe it unless you'd seen it. Think about Grand Canyon. Think about canyons all around the world. How do they form? They say they form by the slow action of water eroding over millions of years. Really? The little Colorado River is a little trickle down the bottom compared to the size of the canyon if you've ever been there. And in fact, all around the world we see massive valleys with tiny little rivers or creeks down the bottom. This is... Uh, Blue Mountains west of Sydney. Now if we think about the flood, the water coming off the land at the end of the flood, we would have had uh, planar movement of the water which would create plateaus. And then as the water started to channel, all the water was, and remember it's, it's still soft because it's just been deposited, and uh, when the water starts to channel, the water would all start to run into the same channel and gouge out the valleys as the water was running off the land at the end of the flood. You see landforms like this all around the world which speak of Noah's flood. It's everywhere to be seen if you have the eyes to see it. But we're indoctrinated in a different way of thinking that things are millions of years old and Noah's flood never happened and so on and so on. But see, it's all about God. It's all about Jesus. There are two ways to live. We can build our lives on God's word or man's opinion. What are people doing today? building the lives on man's opinion. From God's word, we see that he created things. We also see plenty of evidence he created things. For man's word, do we have God creating things? No, we have evolution instead. From God's word, we see that he gave law. For man's opinion, what do we have? Whatever you like. Whatever the voters say, whatever the plebiscite says, whatever the parliament votes, I mean, that's what becomes the law, isn't it? God's law is ignored. We have lawlessness in effect. From God's word we see that there's a basis of marriage. From man's word, what's marriage? Whatever you make of it. So we have this push for homosexual marriage. From God's word we see there's standards of decency. We're made in the image of God and he gave us standards of behaviour. From man's word we see things like rampant pornography destroying the image of God in man. Because man is made in the image of God we destroy man, we destroy the image of God in man. So God's word, we see there's a meaning to life. We were made to love God and to serve him forever and to enjoy him forever. For man's word, what do we have? There's no purpose to life. When you die, you become fertiliser. And so we see this rampant suicide and abortion and euthanasia and all these pushes because they no longer believe we're made in the image of God. 
They're just evolved animals. Get rid of spare cats, you get rid of spare kids. That's where we're at. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that I have life and have it abundantly. Who's the thief? Satan. Satan is using this doctrine of evolution to destroy today, to destroy everything that's important. Jesus came and have life and have it abundantly and we've celebrated what he's done for us around the table this morning. Now, Creation Ministries International, we have a mission and this is our mission statement. Our vision is to see the Lord Jesus Christ honoured as creator and saviour of the world. Is that a good vision? Do you agree with that vision? Would you like to be part of that vision and help us achieve that? I'm sure most of you would. Well, can I encourage you to get involved? To get involved in helping us to achieve this vision, to see the Lord Jesus Christ honoured as creator and saviour of the world. Who gets Creation Magazine, by the way? Who gets Creation Magazine? A number of people already get Creation. God, God bless you. I hope you share it around because we have lots of testimonies of people being saved when people share Creation Magazine with them. So it comes out four times a year, Creation Magazine, and this is one of the testimonies we have. I was converted when someone gave me a creation magazine. Then I subscribed for five of my relatives. Four of them have now come to the Lord. How would you like an 80% hit rate? There's another one. Uh, Rod Walsh, uh, who's a Noah's Ark guy with a model. You've probably come across Rod. Um, he's, he's based here in, in Victoria. Three people came up to me after the message and told me that the creation magazine was responsible for their conversion to Christ. And we get feedback like that all the time. So your free magazine there that you're given today is a sample. You can see the quality of it. Uh, there's also in the magazine, the red part there, uh, if you just grab that, just grab your magazine and, uh, and grab the, the red bit. Um, I'll just show you what I'm talking about here. Um, assuming I can find mine. Here we go. So... There's your magazine and it has a red little thing at the top and you can pull that out. See that? And it looks like this. Uh, oh, by the way, I better tell you. Uh, when you when you get a one-year subscription, we'll give you a fallout, a fallout DVD which is, talks about how this attrition rate in young people can be arrested and what to do about it. But also shows very clearly why it's happening. And uh, for a three-year subscription... Uh, you can also get another choice of another DVD, either this one, Dar How Darwin Got It Wrong, by Dr. John Sanford, who invented the gene gun, top scientist, or Creation Evangelism by Dr. David Catchpool. So you also get, when you get the Creation magazine, uh, you get the digital version. Now the digital version means you can view it on a tablet or a computer or your phone, but you can also share it with five people. So each issue you get, you share with five different people. So it's really something you can spread around. And so I go encourage you, if you don't get Creation Magazine, to fill out the form. And uh, it looks like this, and you can tick whether you want a one or three year subscription. Uh, fill out all your details there, and, uh, and we will send it to you. And you go up the back afterwards and pay for it, and you get those bonuses, the DVDs that I was talking about. Um, and of course you've got your magazine to take with you. If you put your 
email address there so we can send you the link for the digital version and you can just forward that email address, the, the link to the five people or four, uh, four other people you want to share it with. Um, but also if you tick that box there, uh, you will get the Infobytes if you didn't already sign up for that earlier. So um, I'd encourage you to get on board with us to help achieve this vision that we're talking about. You also give a gift subscription. There's a form there. Part of the form allows you to give a gift subscription. Now I'm giving you a minute to do that and I'm going to be quiet and have a drink while you do that. You might want to talk, mum and dad talk about it, but I'll give you a minute. There's also, when you go for a cuppa afterwards, there's a lot of other resources out there. Stones and Bones are a great thing to give away. If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, come and see me. I'll give you a free copy of Stones and Bones. It's free if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you can pay for it. Also, there's some free brochures out there. There's colourful brochures. Have a look at those. Uh, they're designed to give away. Uh, so have a look at what's the, 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 some of the topics covered by those brochures. They can be great for street witnessing. I imagine you're probably already using them. But um, Creation Answers book, I mentioned a while ago, over 65 questions answered there. Uh, you're texting your, your questions uh, to Pastor James's phone, by the way. I'll just remind you. What's the number? And uh, Evolution of Achilles Heels, the documentary. There's eight chapters in the documentary. There's a study guide to go with it. There's 15 PhD scientists involved. There's animations I showed you a while ago are on there. Phenomenal uh, resource um, and uh, encouragement for particularly students and senior high school, university. Uh, but um, the book also goes into a lot more detail. Got the Genesis account by Dr. Jonathan Safady. This has over uh, 800 page commentary on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Covers all the, everything. Uh, it's amazing. And uh, there's also children's materials like One Big Family. There's a children's pack out there. Christmas coming up soon. You might think about the children's pack are there. It's a huge discount on the pack. Uh, and there's also core issues, DVD pack. There's also an introductory pack out there with answers book, refuting evolution and a DVD, which is also very good value. So have a look at that. I just want to finish before the questions by saying that evolution, death and suffering over millions of years supposedly brought man into existence, but the Bible tells us man's actions brought death into God's good world. In fact, that's the reason for the gospel. The good news of Jesus and salvation depends on the bad news of the origin of sin and death in Genesis. If Genesis is just some sort of myth, then Jesus died for no reason. And uh, if death and suffering were here forever, before people came on the scene, why did Jesus die and suffer on the cross? Physical death came through sin. That's why Jesus died physically on the cross, why he rose bodily from the dead, because he had conquered death that came through sin. And so the whole creation is corrupted. The, the Romans chapter 8 talks about this. We, we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, but we look forward to its freedom. Uh, verse before that says, creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. How? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. There will be new heavens and new earth. The new heavens and new earth. This is a big picture. A perfect world destroyed through sin. The new heavens and new earth in the future. I pray that you'll be part of that new heavens and new earth and not actually part of hell where people will be punished for their sin. So Jesus came that we might be part of the new heavens and new earth with him to reign eternally. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. So how are those questions going? Have you got any questions, uh, James?
All right, I've got a few questions here, but keep it coming. Um, first one is, if the story of Genesis and Noah's flood is true, why are there only extinct species and not presently existing species observed frequently in the fossil record, especially in relation to the KPG boundary? Hmm. Um, so the question, uh, yeah, uh, let me just find some slides to illustrate this because this is actually quite a myth that people have perpetuated that only the things in the fossil record are entirely different to things which we see today uh, which is not correct um, uh, we see I I even with dinosaurs uh, the, you find modern birds like uh, loons and cormorants and, uh, and egrets and things actually with dinosaurs but you d don't expect to see them in the Melbourne Museum they don't display them uh, because the, the display they have uh, gives the impression that there's a different world, entirely different to our world. Uh, in fact, they said grasses didn't evolve until after the dinosaur era, but they're found in dinosaur poo, fossilised poos call, are called uh, coprolites, and they found uh, the classical symptoms of grasses, things like trichomes, which are actually... Um, uh, little tiny uh, uh, features of their leaves and they're specific to different species have been found in dinosaur poo. So, okay, grasses must have been around when the dinosaurs were here, but don't expect to see that it was displayed in the museum. They show cycads and things like that, which are supposed to be of that era. But no, grasses were there as well and birds were there and different things like that. Now, not to say that birds were there right down to the bottom of the fossil record, they weren't. But then again, if you think about a, a flood burying things, uh, what would be the sequence which things would be buried? Well, things that, lie, that were on the bottom of the ocean would be expected to be buried first because they can't get out of the way of the, of the mud. So uh, as the mud uh, is uh, transported and deposited around the world, we find the sequence in the fossil record between the bottom-dwelling sea creatures in the ocean up until... Uh, more and more terrestrial creatures and that's the sequence which we do see in the fossil record. Um, it's interesting that, uh, I better finish there because I'll allow some other questions, but things like jellyfish for example. Jellyfish are present in the fossil record, so perhaps Cambrian 500 million years ago and they're still around unchanged today. Starfish also present then, unchanged today. Again and again and again we find creatures which have not changed at all over supposed hundreds of millions of years. In that time frame, a worm is supposed to change into humans and elephants and mice and fish and birds and dinosaurs and everything, uh, but these things that haven't changed. How does that work? For which basically the fossil record doesn't show those changes, uh, but things re reproduce after their kind. Extinction occurs but many things are still present today that are right through the fossil record. Sea creatures right through the fossil record from the beginning to the end. All right. Um, next question is, when someone queries the age of the universe, what is the least disputed and easiest explanation 
uh, explainable evidence to present that demonstrates the young age theory. Okay. Um, if you Google age of the earth, an article on creation.com should come up in the top few hits, which is called age of the earth. And there's 101 evidences for a young age of the earth and the universe. 101, literally, evidences there. And I would suggest you go and have a read of that and find one that you like and put that up your sleeve the next time you're talking to somebody. Um, my favourite is carbon dating. Uh, carbon dating is about as good as it gets in terms of evidence against their ages, uh, long age of the earth because I mentioned a while ago about all the um, coal samples, dinosaur bones, even diamonds have carbon-14 in them. Now diamonds are supposed to be at least a billion years old. How can they have carbon-14 in them if they're that old? Because diamond has a crystal structure. You can't put carbon into a diamond after it's made. So you can't contaminate it. You can't, ex can't explain it through contamination. There's no explanation other than the fact that they're not that old. So I, I think carbon dating is probably the best argument against our old Earth. Um, so, but there's plenty of others. Uh, a lot of the astronomical features in our solar system just do not fit an old, old solar system. Uh, things like uh, Saturn's rings, for example, are disappearing at a rate. They can't have been there for billions of years. The recent probe out to Pluto, the features of Pluto do not fit being billions of years old, etc., etc. There's just so much of it. Oh, soft, soft tissue and dinosaurs is a good one because people are interested in dinosaurs. Uh, blood cells, hemoglobin, all sorts of proteins, DNA have been found in dinosaur bones. I mean, how can they be millions of years old? They don't, they don't last that long. That's a good one. Okay, does the scientific community accept carbon dating as limited? If so, why is it still used or quoted? How do they date things to be millions of years old? Okay, um, carbon dating is not used for things that are millions of years old and that's, that's why it's a problem for them. Um, so I if I sent a dinosaur bone to a carbon, uh, radioactive, radio radiometric dating laboratory and said, would you date that for me? and I told them it was dinosaur bone, they would not date it with carbon-14 because they would say it's too old to be dated with carbon-14. And so the only way you can do this is just say, well, we've got a bone here, can you date it for us using carbon-14? And they date it and they get a date. Um, and, uh, but if you tell them it's a dinosaur bone, they won't use carbon-14 because it's too old to be dated by carbon-14. But here's the rub. When you actually check it for carbon-14, it's present and you can date it according to carbon-14 dating. So they don't use carbon-14 dating for uh, things which are millions of years old. They assume it doesn't work and it won't give the result they want. So they use other things like potassium argon dating and rubidium strontium dating and lead-lead dating and all sorts of other things. But all these things depend on an assumed history before you start. So you can't date anything without assuming it's history. The only way you can know the age of something is to have an eyewitness account which you have on your birth certificate. We have a birth certificate for the universe and it's actually in the Bible. God actually told us what he did and which, what time frame he did it in. Otherwise, we're just imagining things. And, uh, and so the, the measurements are very technical and very sophisticated 
uh, you can measure all these isotopes and things with great precision using atomic mass spectrometry. But uh, in the end, you have to make assumptions about the history to calculate an age. And the point is that the carbon dating contradicts the millions of years used by the other techniques. And, uh, and yes, they, they ac accept the limits of carbon dating. Uh, those, that 90,000 years I mentioned as a limit is a secularly accepted limit of carbon dating. In practice, it's more like about 50 or 60,000 years. But what they do there is they assume a straight line calibration from the present back into the past and they ignore the effect of the flood. If you read the chapter in the Answers book about this, and there's a whole chapter in, on dating of uh, things in the Answers book uh, and, and evidence for the young age of the earth, but, um, but on radium isotope dating, if you read the chapter there and it's available on the website, um, uh, you will find that uh, there's the different techniques contradict one another uh, and particularly carbon dating contradicts the other, other techniques um, and uh, so uh, um, and, and they have these assumptions so the, the measurements are done with a great precision but the assumptions there's something seriously wrong with them uh, where they get these dates Young Earth if we hold on to the young earth explanation, how then can we explain the billions of stars light years away that we see? So the, uh, the distance starlight uh, question. Okay, let, let me, uh, I will pull up a, um, I will pull up a um, presentation about that. Here we are. I was just looking at just a quick question in time. Um, Still on yet? And um, the uh, the people who believe in the Big Bang and the billions of years actually have a problem with starlight travel too. Um, in fact, they've got a bigger problem than we have. Yeah, the problem is um, like this: um, according to the Big Bang idea, uh, it had to start out with some variation in the uh, temperature or heat, otherwise there wouldn't have been any galaxies formed. But in their scenario, there hasn't been enough time for that radiation to even out. And today, we find that it's very even to one part in 100,000 when you measure the temperature of the universe, the background radiation in the universe. It's even to one part in 100,000 and there hasn't been enough time according to the Big Bang scenario for that to happen. So this guy, Alan Guth, developed an idea called inflation. And this idea is that a fraction of a second after the Big Bang occurred, by the way, the Big Bang is where nothing explodes and becomes everything. Understand? Nothing explodes and becomes everything. They reckon we believe in miracles. <coughs> we have a miracle worker, they don't. Okay, so a fraction of a second after the Big Bang started, uh, there was a period of inflation where the expansion of the universe occurred at many orders of magnitude faster than the speed of light. Gravity operated in reverse and then it stopped. In other words, within the first second of the universe, in fact, less than the first second of the origin of the universe, they have five miracles absolutely no explanation for them. So, 
if they can have miracles to explain their problem with the distribution of radiation in the universe, they don't have a miracle worker. We have a miracle worker. I'm way in front and haven't even got any further. But with modern science, we actually may have a bit of an understanding about how God might have done it. And it's got to do with the fact that time is distorted. Gravity distorts time. That's what uh, Einstein was famous for, was the idea of general relativity, that gravity distorts time. And time can run at different rates at different parts of the universe. So if you take an atomic clock and go to the top of a mountain, it will actually run faster than it does at sea level. It's only a slight difference. You won't do it with your Casio. You need an atomic clock to measure it. But it's a real effect, and it's such that the GPS satellites, for example, that we use for navigation here on the Earth, have to take this into account. In fact, there are two factors here. The satellites are moving quite fast, and that speed slows down time. And because there's less gravity, time speeds up. So there are two factors going on here. And there's a third factor which would affect time, and that is... The Bible says in many places God stretched out the universe. In the process of stretching out the universe on day four of creation week, there would have been a very big effect on time because you stretch the fabric of space, you'd actually affect time. This is called cosmological time dilation. So when you combine all those things together in a sense of understanding how God might have created things, you start to see that on day four of creation week, in the cosmos... Out there, clocks are running fast compared to on Earth. And at the end of the fourth day in creation week, when the stretching is completed, because God said he finished doing it, uh, the clock's then running at the same speed, or approximately. So we see that uh, the time, the distance of uh, different galaxies and, uh, and, uh, and so on, they're much bigger than 6,000 years but the, this distortion of the clocks would mean that uh, the light would travel to us uh, in that time and, and Adam and Eve would have been able to see these things uh, at the, when they were created on day six of creation week. They wouldn't have had to wait for these things to happen. So we can see how uh, this uh, effect on time would mean there is a plausible solution to the light travel time problem uh, and we don't have to apologise for it. And uh, in fact, the Big Bang people have a big problem because they have five miracles, four related to this time, time, uh, this light travel time problem uh, without any miracle work or any physical basis for understanding them. So um, there's a whole chapter in the Answers book about that and... Uh, and also there's a book, I'm not sure, don't sure, not sure we have this book with us today, but you can get it, Dismantling the Big Bang, if you're interested in astronomy and cosmology and stuff, a lot more detail about that. All right, final question. Can you explain how a single cell splits into two cells if mutation is a loss of information? Say that again. Can you explain how a single cell splits into two cells if mutation is a loss of information? Yeah, um, not sure what what that's about, really. Um, uh, when a cell splits into a uh, forms two cells, uh, for example, when a 
uh, embryo forms in the mother's womb and there's initially one cell and then it divides and forms two cells and four cells and eight cells and so on. Um, there's, no, there's no mutation involved. Uh, the, the information is copied uh, from one to the other and it's copied with a high degree of precision but there, is, there are mutations that occur and one of the reasons why we age and so on is because the mutations are called somatic mutations that occur in our cells. So by the time you get to my age, you've got tens of thousands of mutations that have occurred in our cells and these cause ageing and death. Um, but with reproduction, what happens is that certain cells are set aside uh, for reproduction so that the egg doesn't have all those accumulated mutations. Now if you, say for example, you take a somatic cell, a skin cell or something rather, and scientists have done this with the dolly the sheep, for example, they took some a cell from her udder, I think it was, and they created an embryo from that and got another sheep. So they cloned dolly the sheep by that process. But because those cells already have accumulated a lot of mutations, the actual cloned sheep didn't have the uh, health of a proper embryo produced by the proper procedure. Is that what I'm saying? saying? So there's a, a there's a mechanism there to protect the embryo and the sperm from this uh, decay. Now there's still 60 to 100 mutations added each generation. I didn't mention this, but the 60 to 100 new mutations per person per generation. So in other words, compared to your parents, you're a degenerate mutant misfit. But they are degenerate mutant misfit compared to their parents. In fact, it points back to perfection in the beginning where Adam and Eve are created by the hand of God with no mutations, no defects. And we've accumulated these defects over the years and we're heading for extinction. In fact, this is called genetic entropy and it's a rather sobering thought that we're not evolving, we're devolving. And when God withdrew some of his sustaining power from his creation, when the fall occurred, when Adam and Eve sinned, death and suffering came into the world, mutations started to accumulate and we see the effects of that today. And a lot of a number of historical events, like uh, God's instruction to the children of Israel uh, about marriage, uh, about marrying brothers and sisters, was prohibited. But before that, it was okay. How could it be okay? Because the mutations hadn't accumulated to the point where it'd be a problem. So a number of these things fit the biblical uh, account in terms of us understanding why that would be so. Why would it be okay for Abraham to marry his half-sister but at the time of Moses that was prohibited because at the time of Abraham it, those mutations hadn't become such a problem. So mutations are killing us, they're not creating us um, and the mutations do accumulate over your life and they do become a factor in our demise. But here's the thing, in Christ there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a new body 
No more death, no more suffering, no more disease, no more cystic fibrosis or anything like that because of what Jesus did in the cross. Isn't that wonderful? So come Lord Jesus, as you get older, you look forward to that more. God bless you. Thank you.